Good morning. morning. Welcome. I'm not Father Chris. Surprise. Uh, Father Chris sends you his greetings. He's at a clergy conference with the clergy from the Diocese of Dallas um, down at Camp Allen, uh, having a great time. So he sends you his greetings and asks that I come and be with you all today. I'm Eric Lyles, the Associate for Formation here at St. Michael's. I've been here about 18 months. I I know most of you, but some of you, if I look unfamiliar, um, that's who I am today. I understand we're in Acts 23 today. I hope that's right. Um, And so uh, we're gonna begin with a prayer and then I wanna look at a couple of maps um, and then we'll dive right in. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you great thanks for the blessing and the gift of this day and the opportunity we have to come and learn more about you and your servant Paul and how we can best be followers of Jesus in this world, especially amongst um, persecutions and accusations that we might even face in our own life. Lord, be with us as we study your word. Send your Holy Spirit to guide us, open our hearts to your truth. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, I think there's a couple of maps I want to call your attention to because I, you can already tell I have terrible handwriting uh, if you look at this. Um, But I also want to make sure, yep, this is the one I want. Um, that we know two things. I don't wanna have to flip in the middle. If you have this book, great. If you don't have this book, um, look on your neighbors um, or find a map in the back of a Bible. And if you don't have that, um, use your imagination. (laughs) The first thing I wanna point out is on page 220. It's a little ahead of where we are um, in this book, um, part two of uh, N.T. Wright's book. But if you look on 220, there's a map here, and the reason I wanna show you this is because up here, you'll see it says Cilicia. Somebody see that, anybody see that? This is a region of Rome, Cilicia, and that's gonna come up in our our reading today. Not to be confused with Sicily, the island off the southern coast of Italy, right? Right, so this is, Cilicia, okay, you with me? Why is that important? Because that's where Paul's from, and he's gonna talk about that in a minute. The next page I want you to turn to, just real quick, is 144 if you have it, because this chapter has some movement in it. We are in Jerusalem, right? Paul's under trial, and so we're gonna go uh, from Jerusalem to Caesarea by the sea, um, one of the Roman capital cities, And in between those two places, um, they're gonna stop for the night. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that um, as we go through Acts 23. Good, everybody okay? Maps all right? Um, So I said in a little bit last week and a a couple times ago, you guys made it through Acts 22 uh, seemingly without any challenges, so good for you. Um, This is great. Uh, I was excited that Acts 23 had some has some excitement in it, so hopefully we'll enjoy that today. Um, So let's just remember where we are. We're in Jerusalem, Paul's been arrested. Um, Paul is under trial and will be now for the next and last four years of his life. So this is sort of part one of many parts and we're gonna go from part one A, B to part two today in Acts 23. Um, And his trials will continue through the book of Acts. Um, as well for the next four and final four years of his life. 
Um, last week, we began to hear a little bit about, about the tribunal, the tribune um, who is accusing Paul, the Roman uh, person in leadership in Jerusalem. Um, and today, we're gonna hear about a different group um, called the Sanhedrin. You guys know who those are? Who's the, San, who's the Sanhedrin? The big cheese, that's good, that's bright. Uh, it's a, a group of, of Jewish leaders um, made up of several different groups, so we'll look at that um, again today. So let's just start in Acts 20, well, before I start. Any pressing questions? Anybody read ahead and are just like, I can't wrap my head around this, or I didn't understand what happened last week, or anybody have any pressing questions before we start Acts 23? It's great, again, noise is fantastic, we love it. It's a gift. Glad you're here. Um, pray for Susan. She hasn't been feeling well this week. I'm not sure if she'll come in or not. Susan Kalen, um, Chris's administrative assistant. Um, normally she's here to, to welcome and greet you all, but um, she's been under the weather the past few days, so keep her in your prayers, please. All right, so let's start with Acts 23, and I'm gonna uh, read uh, probably the first 10 verses. Uh, I, I think we'll do this in threes, so let's begin there. While Paul was looking intently at the council, he said, brothers, up to this day, uh, you know what? Can you flip back to Acts 22, verse 30? This is one of those parts, those times in the Bible where the chapters should have been divided up differently because he really, um, the tribunal comes, they find out, all right, Paul's a Roman citizen. Y'all talked about that last week. I'm gonna start in verse 30. So 22, 30, I'm sorry about that. Um, since, the tribunal wanted to find out what Paul was being accused of by the Jews. The next day, he released him and then ordered the chief priest and the entire council to meet. He brought Paul down and had him stand before them. Okay, so that's the setup. While Paul was looking intently at the council, he said, brothers, up to this day, I have lived my life with a clear conscience before God. Then the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near him to strike him on the mouth. At this, Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting there to judge me according to the law? And yet, in violation of the law, you order me to be struck. And those standing nearby said, do you dare to insult God's high priest? And Paul said, hmm, I did not realize, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a leader of your people. All right, so let's pause there. So Chris talked a little bit about this last week about um, Paul's um, defense of being, you know, he's really the best Pharisee there ever was. Um, and that hasn't actually changed. Paul understands himself as a Jew and the tradition of the Pharisees who has then received the additional good news of Jesus Christ. Now the law, that's been such an important part of Paul's life, um, is now replaced by grace, right? That the law is a precursor to grace. But Paul's understanding is that he's still in that line of continuation. And it would do all of us a lot of good to remember as Christians that we are grafted onto the tree of Judaism, right? Like the Old Testament is our story as well. It's not just our Jewish brothers and sisters story. And Paul is gonna use that as part of his defense. And so, again, he's gonna say, then this is the next day after the, the previous day in chapter 22. He's gonna say, you know, I, I've, it's not that I've not made any mistakes in my life, but in, every time I've made a mistake, I've made restitution for it as the law provides, right? So um, when you 
uh, incur guilt, you make a guilt offering, right? When you um, sin against somebody, you make restitution. If you defraud somebody or you know, those kinds of things. The law's really clear about all those prescriptions and Paul's basically saying, look, up until this point in my life, you know, I've tried to be a really good person and anytime I've fallen short, I've, I've made it right. And the response is for Ananias, who is the high priest, to have him punched in the mouth. So, I don't know, sometimes it's kind of refreshing that Paul gets punched in the mouth, but that's, um, anyway, not in this case. So, Paul, um, his response, like many of ours, to getting punched in the mouth is then to um, insult the high priest. Now, it should be a leap of faith for, for us to, uh, maybe an impossible leap of faith for us to imagine that Paul didn't know who the high priest was. But th- so when he says, oh, forgive me, you know, I didn't realize that it was the high priest. But he, do- he does know. And the reason that we know he knows is because what he says is, is a quote from Ezekiel um, about, uh, you know, the people are sort of whitewashed, meaning like the outsides look pure and shiny, but inside they're rotting kind of a thing, you know. We paint a fence to make it look good even though it's already decaying. And, and Paul's saying this to him because, even though he's the high priest, he should know better because it is against the law for the high priest to command somebody to be struck because Paul knows the law, right? So the more you know the Bible, the better defense you have when somebody says something from the Bible, you can respond with, yes, but, and it also says this, and it also says this. So it's good, I think, motivation and encouragement for us. And so their interaction here is pretty tricky. Now, this should also remind you of Jesus on trial in Jerusalem before the uh, Roman authorities, then it gets sent to the Jewish authorities and the high priest, and Jesus being struck, right? Um, and prophesy who, who struck you. you know, those, it, there's a, a clear echo with Paul in his trial here with what happens in Jesus' passion. So um, that's not accidental at all. Um, questions or comments about this first little part? Yes. Next section, I promise we will talk about it. You're good? So right now the Sanhedrin it consists of Pharisees and Sadducees and others and the high priest and, and other sort of Jewish uh, royalty of the day. Um, let, me, let me do this too. What year is this? Acts 23. This is a, an important distinction. Anybody know? It's in AD, yeah. It's in the common era. Any, any guesses? 70 would be too late because the temple is destroyed in 70. 60's a good guess, it's later than 50. So um, the oldest book of the New Testament would be 1 Thessalonians, one of Paul's letters. It's probably written between 49 and 51. 51's a good year to use. So Paul's missionary journeys take place through the 50s. So if Jesus dies in 30, it's about 10 years after, sort of, when Paul has his conversion, and then he spends some time training and then has his different missionary journeys, so 45 to, 60-ish, so yeah, I mean, that could be helpful. I just say that because I think it's important to remember that the narrative we're reading here about Acts 23 is set in around, let's say 60, just for the sake of, of having a year. But when is Acts written? When does the author Luke write down Acts? Much later, 
So the earliest date, maybe 90, right? So 30 years later. And what's happened between 60 and 90? The temple's been destroyed, Rome has destroyed Jerusalem, the people have been dispersed. It's gonna be important in a second just to keep that in mind in the back of our heads as we read through this so we can begin to understand what Luke's trying to do sort of in this story. Any of the questions about the high priest ordering Paul to be struck and his response? Okay, y'all with me that he probably knew who the high priest was but was like, if you're the high priest, you should know better. You know, Paul's kind of scolding him, yeah. Anybody else excited Paul got punched in the mouth? No, okay, all right, sorry, bad joke. All right, so let's pick up with verse six, and here we're gonna talk about Sadducees. Paul is very wise, very knowledgeable, and he's paying attention. So let's start here in verse six, Acts 23. When Paul noticed that some were Sadducees, and others were the Pharisees, he called out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and I'm on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dissension began between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, or angel, or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all three. Then a great clamor arose, and certain scribes of the Pharisee group stood up and contended, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dissension began, became violent, the tribune, fearing they would tear Paul to pieces, ordered the soldiers to go down, take him by force, and bring him into the barracks. All right, so who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? Um, this is uh, the best way I know how to teach this. Forgive me, because it's a children's song. It's called, I Just Want to Be a Sheep. If you, if you know it, sing along. It goes like this. Um, I just want to be a sheep. I just want to be a sheep. Um, that's not how it goes. It goes like this. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee. Because they're so sad, you see. I just want to be a sheep. And then the next verse is, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Because they're no fair, you see. I just want to be a sheep. And you can ba 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 and all that kind of stuff. It's fun. So why are the Sadducees sad? Well, they don't believe in the resurrection, right? They believe that after you die, that's the end of the story. And the Pharisees do believe in the resurrection, and so Paul's gonna say, you know, the whole reason I'm here on trial is because I'm a Pharisee. Because, like you, I believe in the resurrection, and I'm, I'm talking about it, I'm, I'm preaching about, you know, and he's going to later say to the Pharisees specifically, like that hope of the resurrection, we've experienced it in Jesus. He's not gonna bring that part up right now because he sees a crowd that potentially can be divided. So Paul, who's on trial here now in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, is gonna take the opportunity to divide them into different groups. This is also important that we remember when this is happening and, and when this is written because the Sadducees don't exist anymore by 90. They're wiped out. They're not a group that we contend with. So even though Luke, the author, is talking about the Sadducees, we need to remember that Luke, who's writing to a Gentile audience, um, is concerned that the Pharisees, those who've continued with the Mosaic law after the destruction of the temple in a new way, that Luke's trying to make those connections. You are hoping for the resurrection, and Paul is proclaiming that hope. He's experienced it in the risen Christ. He's had that encounter. So come on with us. So that's Luke 
his intent as the author of this, and that's what's happening. Um, so again, he, Paul is, is very wise and knowledgeable and he's able to use that, that wisdom and uh, his uh, paying attention to the crowd to sort of make this division happen. It seems to be uh, on purpose. Um, and when the fight breaks out, the Romans say, we, they know he's a, a citizen, we gotta take this guy out of the way. So they don't take him back into jail, they take him to the barracks where the soldiers are so they can keep him safe. Cool? Questions, comments? Gripes, grievances, concerns, musings. You awake? Everybody all right? I'm not gonna sing anymore if you don't. All right, so let's keep going. Do you remember earlier in Acts when Peter is imprisoned and an angel of the Lord appears to Peter and breaks his chains? There's another good children's song, but I won't sing it. Remember that as we begin here in verse 11. That night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, keep up your courage, for just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness also in Rome. So uh, Jesus appears and says, you're not done yet by the way, this is not the end. So that's encouragement, even though you know, Paul's kind of been through it already at this point. Um, and he's not yet been to Rome. In the morning, the Jews joined a conspiracy and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who joined in this conspiracy and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the council must notify the tribune to bring him down to you on the pretext that you want to make a more thorough examination of his case, and we are ready to do away with him before he arrives. So Paul's been taken into custody for his protection in the barracks, and this group of Jews gets together not through the initiative of of the leaders, right? The high priest doesn't command them to do this. There's just 40 guys that say, we're really mad at this guy, we really want him to die, and so we're gonna get together, we're gonna make this oath, we're not gonna eat or drink. Um, You have to be really careful when you make an oath to God, because bad things can happen. You all have heard some of those stories through through God's story this year, I know. Um, And so then they go and say to the leadership, hey, let's call another trial so we can you know, in the pretext that, that we need to ask some more questions, but then while he's on the way, we'll lie in wait and kill him, right? So this is a, a, a plot, a conspiracy to kill Paul um, before anything else can happen. So continuing um, in verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard about the ambush. The who? Who's the son of Paul's sister? What, what's the son of your sister called? Your Nephew, right? Wait, Paul has a sister? Paul has a nephew? Yeah, we've never heard of them before in the Bible, but yeah. So um, there's one other time, um, you know, Paul is from Tarsus. Um, This is in Jerusalem. Um, There's one other sort of occasion where maybe Paul's family is involved, but here's a a really interesting little section that might help you rethink who Paul is, because I think a lot of times we think of Paul as a sort of independent guy who just kind of did his own thing. His dad is a Pharisee, we know that. Um, but in his persecution of Christians, we don't really hear much about his personal life or his family life. But here we hear he has a sister, 
and she's got a son, so he has a nephew, and they happen to be in Jerusalem, or at least the nephew does. So I'll continue there. Um, So the nephew went and gained entrance to the barracks, and he told Paul all the things of the conspiracy that he had just heard about the ambush. So Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to tell you. The tribune took him by the hand, drew him aside privately and asked, what is it that you have to report to me? And he answered, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were gonna inquire more thoroughly into his case but do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. They have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they kill him. They are ready now and are waiting for your consent. So um, I hope you've picked up on this. The Bible likes to tell you what's gonna happen, um, what happens, and then what just happened. We do a lot of that. So uh, we hear about the conspiracy, and then Paul's nephew tells Paul, and then he tells the um, tribune as well, right? So there's triads a lot, it happens a lot. Um, And it just provides a narrative flow. It helps us to remember the story and the details that are happening. So it's kind of remarkable here that um, although God doesn't send an angel to free Paul from being imprisoned, protected in the barracks, um, or to get off uh, uh, being acquitted of, of being on trial here, he does somehow, Paul's nephew happens to hear all these things um, and then is able to come and find Paul and tell Paul and Paul is able to send him to the, the, the tribunal and they are able to hear it and um, they'll make a decision and, and we'll see that in just a minute. So I, I do think that's sort of God, God's power working, right, with, what, with, with what's going on in the area. Um, kind of a miraculous thing that anybody overheard this conspiracy and then was brave enough to report it and then that the, the Romans actually listened to it. Um, God, God is not done with Paul yet, right? I think that's the kind of message of um, Acts 23. Um, questions or comments about that section? Um, just sort of as an aside, uh, thinking about the apostles, um, we know that Peter and Andrew are brothers and James and John are brothers. Um, we also knew, know that Peter was married because Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Um, in fact, on the trip we just took to Israel, uh, we went to Capernaum and um, saw Peter's mother-in-law's house, which is, becomes one of the first house churches um, after the resurrection. Uh, it's a pretty spectacular kind of place. Um, and so um, when we read the Bible and we get stories about individuals, um, sometimes it's difficult to imagine their extended life outside of the details we have. Um, but a story like this, I do think, helps us to, to humanize Paul and say, oh yeah, right, Paul, he was a son. Just like everybody, all guys are sons. He had a mother and a father. and. He had a sister, so he's a sibling, so we we know what that's like, so Paul would have had that experience, and he had a nephew, and those of us who have nieces or nephew know know, what that's like, and Paul had that experience too, and so I think those kind of details help us to to make Paul a a real person rather than this ethereal guy who wrote a bunch of stuff a long time ago, right? I hope that helps. Um, It does me, It, it it does help for me. All right, so the nephews come and reported privately, right? 
So the Tribune, uh, verse 22, dismisses the young man, ordering him, tell no one that you've informed me of this. And then he summoned two centurions and said, get ready to leave by nine o'clock tonight for Caesarea with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and also provide mounts to Paul to ride and take him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. So we're gonna pause right there. So um, Caesarea is not a day or two days ride from Jerusalem. It's a bit further. Um, On page 175, there's a better map. So it's about a 60, 70 mile straight route. And so um, they're not gonna make it there straight away. And um, we're gonna deal with the letter in just a second, and then next week we're gonna talk about Paul's encounter with Felix. Um, But basically at nine o'clock at night, you know, you're gonna take Paul out of the city and take him north. And so uh, it, it might be better to understand this, I will see in a minute, as get him out safely to a place where then he can continue on um, and some of them will go. But how many does he send? Look at this. 200 soldiers, they've worked all day and now it's nine o'clock, they gotta get ready and go. 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, all to protect one guy from 40 guys lying in ambush, right? Why? Why? Because Paul's a Roman citizen. It's the only reason. Yeah, and just like with Jesus, um, remember that Pilate um, interviews Jesus and then he sends him to who? Uh, Caiaphas, but he also sends him uh, to Herod, not Herod the Great, but Herod Agrippa. And then they send him back to Pilate. And so this uh, tribune is gonna send Paul along to Felix, who's gonna be the governor of this area. And um, yeah, this next part, we're gonna explain it a little bit better. So uh, quite a large group of people that are gonna escort Paul on the way. Um, It seems a little bit improportional, uh, but at the same time, Um, there is sort of a fear that a Roman citizen might be mistreated by the local populace. And so they're going that way. Questions or comments about where we are? What's going on? Yes? Do we know what happened to the 40? We don't. Yeah, I think they probably died of starvation, right? I mean, (laughs) I don't think we do. I don't remember reading about them. Um, yeah, I mean, you gotta be really careful if you make a vow to God, like what you're saying, because uh, if you're gonna be true to it, right, or if you're gonna break a vow, that's kind of a big deal too. People get swallowed up by the earth for, for those kinds of things, so. It's in numbers, by the way, that story. Um, good question. What happens to those guys? Yeah, I guess they probably starved to death, yeah. Any other questions or comments about where we are so far? All right, so the Tribune is gonna write a letter Now, um, this is fascinating uh, that this exists. Um, This letter is just gonna summarize what's happened, um, but maybe put the the Roman authority in a better light. You know, hey, you know, I did a good job. I'm sending you this guy, this is, you know, he wants to look good. 
Um, and so the letter says, verse 26, um, Claudius Lysias. So we've, now we know his name, the tribune that we've been talking about all these times. Claudius Lysias. Now what does that mean? Claudius Lysias. Um, people name themselves kind of after a Caesar and those kinds of things. Um, and so he's writing a letter to Felix. Um, and Antonius Felix uh, is the ruler of all of Judea, the governor of all of Judea. And he was uh, a favorite freedman. He was born a slave, but earned his freedom and then got promoted um, by the emperor Claudius. And so um, Lysias, who maybe was of the privileged class, is gonna write a letter to Felix, who was born a slave, but then became a freedman. So he's not of the aristocracy, although he happens to now be the governor of all of Judea. He's a big deal, it's a big role that he plays because he was one of the favorites of the emperor. So, greetings. This man, Paul, seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, but when I learned that he was a Roman citizen, I came with the guard and rescued him. That's not exactly what happened, right? Since I wanted to know the charge for which they accused him, I had him brought to their council. And I found that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but was charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Um, Pontius Pilate, I find nothing against this man deserving of death. Echoes of Jesus' trial. Um, When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against them. Do you remember where Felix is, geographically? I hear it, a little louder. Caesarea by the sea, so up north. This is a Roman stronghold. Um, It's beautiful, incredible. Um, You can go see the ruins there. Uh, today it's in uh, Haifa, near Haifa uh, in Israel. Um, and uh, so that's where they're sending Paul. Well, guess what? All those guys in Jerusalem who have been accusing him, that Sanhedrin group, where are they going to have to go to continue their argument against Paul? Caesarea. So that's an important point as well. Like, we're getting them out of here and sending them to you, and I'm going to tell them they need to come to you to make their case against him. So in verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him during the night to Antipatris. Now this is a city about halfway there, um, but that city's like 30 miles. So if they leave at nine o'clock at night and they're traveling at night, they're probably not gonna make it 30 miles in one night. I mean, that's a bit of a stretch. So it's possible that they just kind of got him far enough away that he would eventually get there. And then in 32, the next day, they let the horsemen go on with him. Remember how many horsemen are with him? 200 of them. While um, they return to the barracks. So this, uh, sorry, 70 horsemen. There's 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. So the 70 horsemen go on with Paul, but the rest return to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and developed, uh, delivered the letter to the governor, uh, they presented Paul also before him. So um, it says the next day, but again, that's a 60 mile journey. So it, it, it may be that the first leg was to Antipatres and then the next leg was to Caesarea. On reading the letter, uh, Felix asked, this is why this geography is important, what province Paul belonged to? 
And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And then he ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's headquarters. Why does Felix ask what province Paul belongs to? Yes, he wants to make sure that Paul is in the right place. Um, And the reason for that might be, because if Paul is not under his jurisdiction, he didn't want to deal with it, right? This this guy's a mess. This guy's causing trouble. So, okay, great, you've sent him to me because I'm the governor of this particular area. So where are you really a Roman citizen from? Because if you're from over there, and I'm just gonna send you right along there as well. Now eventually, Paul, this next chapter, he's gonna talk with Felix and he will get sent on from there. But Felix is the governor of Judea, which includes the region of Cilicia, which we looked at on the map when we started. Um, Syria, modern day Syria. Um, Paul is from there, right, Tarsus. Um, his conversion happens on the road to Damascus. Those are places in, in modern day Syria. And so the Romans are going through kind of their system, their checks and balances. So Paul's a Roman citizen, that means we have to keep him from being killed by the Jews. Um, and, but they want him to die, we gotta figure out why, something about their law, we've given them some permission about these things. So there's an argument, and he divides them up, and so they keep him in protection, and then when the plot to kill him, he kinda gets sent on to the next thing. Um, I think just a couple other points that I'd like to make, but then I'm happy to, to talk about anything from Acts that you all have, have read so far, is that, um, again, Paul's journey's not over. This is sort of um, a couple of stops in the middle of it. You all know this because you, you've been doing this for a while. Paul in Jerusalem, when all this starts, this is after Paul's made three missionary journeys, right? Paul's already been all over the place. Starting churches, writing letters, preaching the gospel, um, having conflicts with the apostles. Uh, Peter and um, James, having conflicts with the Jewish folk in the synagogues all over the place, Um, being thrown in prison and let go. Um, Paul's really already been through all of this again. So um, this is after years and years and years of Paul's work, now he's in Jerusalem under trial again, and this is the trial that will go forever. Can you imagine being on trial for four years? No. Um, but that's kind of what happens. And so Paul is uh, kind of in the midst of this, but in the midst of being under trial and accused, Paul takes every opportunity he can to proclaim the good news. So even in his dividing the Sanhedrin up, what he's doing is he's proclaiming the good news of the resurrection, right? Hey, Pharisee, hey, my brothers, you Pharisees, we're, we believe in this thing, the resurrection, right? And Luke is trying to make sure that we know that that's what Paul is up to in the midst of this. Yeah, he's dividing the group and it helps to save himself, right, ultimately. Um, but what he's doing in all of these cases, when he goes before Felix the governor, when he goes before the tribune, when he goes before the Sanhedrin, Paul is always telling the story of Jesus, of his death and resurrection, of the cross, um, in order that the gospel can be shared and spread abroad. Paul thinks Jesus is coming tomorrow. If you remember that, you will understand Paul's urgency in all things. Every opportunity, every conversation that Paul has is trying to make sure that whoever he's talking to 
gets to come with him into glory, right? If Jesus is coming tomorrow, what are you gonna do today to make sure that all the people that you know and love get to come with you into glory? That's Paul's mentality. Jesus is coming tomorrow, all right? Now, after 15 years, he still has that belief, that same urgency. And um, here we are 2,000 years ago, we're still waiting for Jesus to come back, but what if we left here today with that same sense of urgency? Jesus is coming tomorrow. What do I need to do today to prepare myself and all those that I know and love for Jesus' triumphant return? So that helps you, I think, understand what Paul is about and all of these things. All right, so that's Acts 23. Questions, comments about this or anything from Acts that you've heard so far or what's coming next or Paul's letters or? It's a great question. Um, I would say one of the things that it does is it gives validity um, to Paul in a way that um, so Luke is a, is a traveler with Paul, right? You, you guys know that. Um, and Luke's gonna write a gospel, and he's gonna write um, the Acts, the similar length, two sides of a scroll, that kind of stuff. Luke knows Paul, and one of the things that Paul struggles with is he's not Peter. He's not James. He's not John. Paul always struggles with having the authority of being an apostle, even though his understanding of apostle is that apostle is someone that the risen Lord has appeared to. And certainly, Paul has had that experience, and he can, you know, it changed his whole life, it changed his whole trajectory, his whole understanding of the law. And so, um, Paul is constantly looking for some sort of validation. You might know in the correspondence with the Corinthians that Paul says, um, hey, I'm gonna go away for a little bit, I'm writing you this letter, um, but I'm gonna come back, and then he doesn't come back, and then he sends some other people, and they're like, who are these guys? Like, we don't even know who you are. You're not James or John or Peter or Thomas. And so Paul struggles with that throughout his ministry, of feeling like he had, Paul knows he has the authority to do what he, he's doing, but he struggles to, to make sure that other people recognize that. And so, I mean, as we hear this story and you see the parallels with Jesus' own trial, I think it gives validity to Paul, right? I think it, it shows like, yes, Paul is an apostle and just like Peter, who is going to be martyred and just like these other guys, Paul's gonna do the same kind of deal. And it also, I think, um, shows, uh, again, for Luke's readers, again, post the destruction of the temple, that this concept, these Pharisees who are still that's it. I mean, after the destruction of the temple, there's no more zealots, there's, there's no more Essenes, there's no more Sadducees, it's just Pharisees, right? Pharisaic Judaism is what comes to be normative. And so when Luke's writing about Paul, he's saying, this guy was you, and you believe in the resurrection. And because Jesus did these things, look, Paul's doing the same kind of parallel experience going before the Romans. Um, he's different because he's a Roman citizen and he's not the son of God. He's just one of his apostles, but there's that connection between them. So Luke's writing to make sure that the people who read this story understand Paul in the light of Jesus's life and ministry because he didn't know him when he was alive. So that authority question, I think, is a big part of why um, we see these significant parallels. We see them with other apostles as well. Um, James and John are both crucified, 
right? Later, or previously in Acts, I guess. Um, and so, those kind of stories, uh, there's other parallels with, with lots of the saints and martyrs as well. It gives them authority, I think. Other questions, comments, Acts? Yeah. It's not. It's the Gentile population um, in the in the sort of expanded area beyond just Judea. However, um, Luke and Acts, same author. Um, so it's intended for Gentiles, but it's intended for Gentiles who live in communities where there are Pharisees, right? And so, um, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're a Gentile. Um, and you live in Damascus or wherever, and you are constantly every day in business and family and other relationships with Jews who are now all Pharisees. I mean, that's the, that's the Judaism of the day, um, post all of, all of this stuff. And so this gives you information on how to have conversations about, yeah, you believe in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. Yeah, it's happened. Jesus was raised from the dead, you know? like. So it gives you ammunition sort of to, to have that conversation with. Um, yeah, Matthew's not concerned about that. Matthew's concerned about um, a Jewish audience and understanding uh, Jesus is fulfilling all of the Jewish prophecies. He goes out of his way and bends over backwards and mixes things up in order to try to make all of the round pegs fit into square holes and all those kinds of things. Um, but Lucas has a more expansive understanding of Jesus and his ministry. So it's a good question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so around the time of the destruction of the, the temple. So uh, the best way to explain this is, so if you are, um, you have to go way back, and Chris did this a couple weeks ago. Um, Jerusalem becomes a city under David, right? David is the king, and then Solomon, and then after that it all goes to pot, and the kingdom gets divided into two, and then the northern kingdom gets wiped out, and the southern kingdom gets wiped out. Uh, and then Second Temple Judaism from about 515 before the Common Era up until 70, so it's, five, it's almost 600 years, um, is, is a different type of Judaism than we read about in most of the Old Testament. Um, and there are different factions within it. Um, and so these groups develop kind of out of it. Um, Sadducees have a particular interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, the Pharisees have a particular interpretation, the Zealots have a particular interpretation, and as do the Essenes, right? So they're all reading the same stuff, maybe a little different stuff, as we discovered in Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls. But once, there's been a Jewish diaspora, right, in 722 when the Assyrians come in, and there's been another one in 586 with Babylon, and then with Persia, and some of those people have come home, but there are Jews that live in Egypt and up in Syria and kind of all over, right? But once the temple in Jerusalem are destroyed in 70, those other groups are basically gonna go away. The community at Qumran, the Essianic Jews are killed, they're all wiped out in 68. Uh, the temple in uh, Jerusalem and most of the Sadducees, if not all, we don't hear from them anymore after that, are all wiped out. So um, what, continues on um, is a Pharisaic understanding of Judaism. It's interpreting the law in conversation um, with one another, 
um, and attempt to, we can't do ritual sacrifice anymore. What do we do? We don't have a temple. Well, now we talk about the law. We discuss how God has done God's mighty acts throughout history, and we worship God um, through psalms and, and all that kind of stuff. Same thing the early Christians were doing, same things we do today, but um, it's a particular understanding of how to interpret Judaism in light of the destruction of the temple. Um, not being able to do the whole animal sacrifice is kind of a really big game changer, right? I mean, if you, if you read about the people when they're in exile in Babylon, they, they don't really, they think God has abandoned them. They don't know what to do. So it takes some time, you know, to sort of work those things out. So, mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, so there are, um, yeah. I don't know that any of the Jews today who understand themselves, who don't, under, who don't believe in a resurrection, I don't know that any of them would be, call themselves Sadducees. Um, I think that's a particular group of people in a particular time that's happening. Um, so modern Jews today are as diverse as Jews were in the first century. Um, and there are three main categories, um, sort of orthodox, uh, conservative and reformed. Um, mostly, we don't have a lot of dealings with Orthodox Jews, but you all know that they um, follow the law very, very closely and particularly and uh, kind of separate themselves from other people. Um, within, the, within the structure of conservative and reformed Judaism, um, you'll find cultural Jews um, you'll find atheists who consider themselves Jews, which means they don't believe in God at all, but they're Jewish. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, you'll find um, Jews who um, believe in resurrection and those who don't. You'll find Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah and those who don't. Um, we call them, um, we've, Messianic Jews or Jews for Jesus is another uh, sort of branch of that. There are Jews who believe that Messiah is still to come um, and then there are others who sort of say, you're yeah, not really. Um, there's a group of people called Samaritans. They come up in the Bible all the time. They still exist today. They only read the first five books of the Bible. Um, and they have a different understanding of where Moses received that than Jews. So there's lots of variations and differences in the myths. I think the point I'm trying to make is that these particular four groups of Judaism that exist, there are more probably, but that, and we didn't know this until Qumran really, that these, I mean, you can read in the Bible. You can say, Simon the Zealot. Well, what is a zealot? Well, it's a type of Jew who has a particular, what's a Herodian? Well, those are Jews who support Herod, right? And you go through, so there's five. There's a fifth one. Um, what I'm, I'm just trying to make the point of, in 70, those sort of five no longer are in the mainstream, and what continues um, is the Pharisaic understanding of Judaism. I think this is an important point because after Paul, what continues in Christianity is not Peter's understanding of Jesus, and it's not James's understanding of Jesus, which means you have to be a Jew in order to be a follower of Jesus, but Paul's understanding, right? Paul, Paul's Christianity is what is taken forward into the future. Um, we, you can read in the New Testament different understandings of how to follow Jesus. There is a... Um, a Benetarianism. There's a worship of father and son that exists before the church figures out. It's actually a trinity. I mean, that's in the Bible too, but 
It takes a minute, you know, to sort of work those things out. It's the most difficult philosophical concept humans have ever come up with, so, or been exposed to. So um, it takes a minute to figure that out. But we don't have Christians today, mostly, (laughs) who would say you have to be Jewish and be circumcised on the eighth day and learn the law and do your bar mitzvah in order to be a follower of Jesus. We, We almost did, if not for Paul, that's what it would have been, right? So what continues post-destruction of the temple, that's, that's the point I'm making. Now there are certainly other interpretations today, yeah. Other questions about Acts 23 or just Acts in general or Paul? Yes, Mark. So this is a great question. So, um, As we read this story in Acts, it seems like Paul is by himself. When we read Paul's letters, which are written from prison, a lot of them, um, he often mentions that different people are writing with him, Timothy, Silas, or that other people are or have been with him during that time. This particular story where he's sort of taken into the barracks and then sort of sent on, you know, with the, the Roman garrison, it seems to me like he's probably by himself, but it wouldn't surprise, and it shouldn't surprise us, that when Paul shows up in Caesarea, that some of Paul's friends or mentees are gonna show up to make sure that Paul's taken care of. Um, and so, you know, when you read a letter and it says, um, so-and-so Sosthenes sends their greeting, they're with Paul in the prison while he's writing that letter. Um, it's a great question. I think this story lends us to think maybe Paul is sort of just just one person that they're kind of carrying in caravan. But certainly, um, time after time, when we read Paul's letters, we see that he's not really alone. There are others who he has taught or shared in the gospel with um, that are with him. That's a really great question. Um, I love the, um, I, I really struggle with the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, because of the mistreatment of women. Um, that's a topic for another time, but I love, I love like at one, at, he's like dying, like I'm dying, I'm gonna die, I'm in prison, I'm dying, and then he's like, hey, bring my coat. And I'm like, what? Are you dying or do you need your coat? Like, are, are you just saying you're cold? What is, what's happening here? So, I, you know, I have a little fun with that, but um, it's, it's interesting, because he's, he's writing, and by the way, when Paul writes a letter, there's no post office, right? A letter only gets from one place to another if someone delivers it, right? And so that's why we can tell, like, he's corresponding with these communities. It's not just, by the way, um, 1 Corinthians is not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We always say that in church, but it's not right, because he references his previous letter in 1 Corinthians. So they're writing back and forth. It's a, a living thing. It's a relationship, right? It's not like Paul, like, was like Muhammad and sitting on high and scribing First Corinthians. It's like, or the Islamic understanding of how the Quran comes to be. It's that Paul's writing to this community that he's been at and that he's left and that he's written to and they're like, no. <laughs> they write back and so people are going back and forth to Paul and these communities all the time. And we know who they are, right? Timothy and Titus and Silas and others. And a lot of those are gonna be with Paul as he's writing the letters as well. All right, thank you all so much for bearing with me today. It's been great to be with you. Um, Blessings on your continued study of Acts.